Hebrews. First, we'll turn to chapter 2. Hebrews 2, and we'll read the verses 10 through 18. We're just picking up pieces from the letter of Hebrews, which is very much like a long sermon in itself, and we're just picking a few places that we want to stop and reflect on and meditate on. So Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18 for it was fitting that he, that's Christ, for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Sorry, that he is, is God the Father, not, not Christ, since the founder of our salvation is Christ. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So far from Hebrews 2, let's turn also a page or two forward to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, and we'll read verses 23 through 28. This is again reflecting on the the person of our Savior, the Savior God sent. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So far from God's word. As we reflect on these things, let's also ask God for wisdom Lord's Day 6 from the Heidelberg Catechism, that's on page 522 of your books of praise.
And there the question that we're looking at this afternoon is, why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who is at the same time true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only Son. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, every time we survey the basics, the essentials of the Christian faith, we do this year after year using the catechism, we discover that there are some areas in in that study of the faith that are immensely practical. How Christians live, you might think of the Ten Commandments or the section on the Lord's Prayer, how we grow in our sanctification, how we pray to God. Those are all areas that require a great deal of honest soul-searching. And we've done a lot of that also in the last weeks as we've looked at our sin, the reality of our sin and the, the problem that it presents before God. And then there are other areas of the Christian faith that are very, the best word maybe is brainy, very theological. They require a lot of thinking. Theology is not always simple. As North Americans, we tend to want everything to be very simple. If you can't explain it to me in two sentences, then it's probably not worth my time. But as we read the Bible, we discover that's just not the way it works. God's ways are higher than our ways. And there are many sides to our salvation, many elements of our salvation that take a great deal of searching and and thinking to try and understand why God did things for our salvation the way that he did them. We know that these things must be important. Otherwise, why would God have, have orchestrated them that way? But it doesn't mean we automatically understand why they matter or how they're important for us. There's a lot of learning in the Christian faith, a lot of growing in knowledge and understanding. The gospel, the beautiful thing is, it's it's simple enough you could explain it to just about anybody in, in five minutes. And yet the Christian church has taken centuries, millennia, to try and understand it and continues to 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 search and and to understand how all the different elements in the gospel interact with each other. And that's more or less what you find in in Lord's Day 6. It's a theological Lord's Day. It's a brainy Lord's Day. It takes thinking and reflection and understanding. It has to do with the two natures of Jesus Christ. We find this revealed in Scripture. There's that great mystery right at the heart of the Christian faith. 
If, I've, if you've grown up as a Christian, I'm sure you've heard it many times that God's Word reveals a Savior who is, on the one hand, fully God, and yet on the other hand, He's one of us. He's a, a human being in every respect. But we don't often stop and consider why. Why did God send that kind of Savior? It must be necessary because that's the Savior that God has sent. But why? Why couldn't it be any other way? Well, that's what this Lord's Day then encourages us to do, to reflect on God's Word using these different passages that speak about Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity, and to consider why. Why must it be this way? These are good questions to ask because they give us insight into the kind of salvation that God has given us, that Christ has earned. We can grow in our knowledge and our appreciation for what Christ has done if if we reflect on why he did the things that he did the way that he did them. And these questions, they, in a way, they even give us an insight into the very mind of God. What motivated God to send a Savior like this? Why did God have to send this kind of Savior? He sent this Savior, we know that, and we know that it was right, it was fitting in His eyes, and that tells us something about Himself, His justice, His wisdom. And so it's good for us to ask ourselves, why? Why this kind of Savior? Here's another way to put the same question. The kind of Savior that you're looking for reflects the kind of salvation that you believe you need. The kind of Savior you're looking for reflects the salvation that you think you need. Let me give you a a simple example. Maybe you remember when Samuel was looking for the next king, when Saul had turned out to be an unfaithful king, and then Samuel sent to the house of Jesse. And there he he meets all of these sons of Jesse, and he, he meets the oldest brother, and he immediately assumes this must be the man that the Lord has chosen. Well, why did he assume that? Well, because he was the tallest, he was handsome, he was strong, he looked like the kind of king that Samuel believed uh, was needed. The kind of salvation you think you need determines the kind of savior you look for. Man, though, looks to outward appearances. That was the lesson that, that Samuel had to learn. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord was looking for a different kind of leader for God's people. You might also think of how the disciples uh, reacted to the Lord Jesus saying that he would suffer and die. They, they couldn't process it. It didn't make sense to them that Christ would die for, on a cross for their sins because that wasn't the kind of salvation that they were looking for. Well, Scripture teaches in the first place our Savior needed to be truly God. And we're going to see that in Scripture. And, we're, and so we want to, what we want to do is we, we can conclude that if we had assumed that our Savior would be anything different, if he would just be one of us, a human being like the rest of us, but not God, that tells us we're looking for a different kind of salvation. Let me show you where Scripture teaches that. If you like, you can turn with me to Isaiah 59. Verse 14, this is, of course, one of many passages. Isaiah 59, verse 14. 
at the time that this text was written, or perhaps spoken as the case may be, not all the Jews agreed that the Savior, the Messiah, needed to be God. Some of them had begun to understand this. The ancient records do indicate that. But many Jews, many other Jews, saw no need for a Savior who was also divine. They didn't understand the kind of salvation that they needed. They weren't looking for that kind of Savior because they didn't realize what kind of problem he needed to save them from. So God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 59, verse 14. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. So what the prophet is is saying in those verses is that if you believe that one of you, a man from among you, can be the savior of your people, then you're looking for the wrong kind of salvation because the real problem is the sinful condition that infects all of us. If you think that one of you can rise up and be the savior that God's people needs, you misunderstand the salvation that God's people need. And this is the point that that the catechism actually doesn't make, perhaps it should, that one of the reasons that our savior needed to be divine is because God alone is righteous. And as the only righteous one, God alone can provide salvation. If we think that one of us could become our Savior, then we're either looking for a different salvation, or we don't understand how bad the problem actually is. We're mistaken about how serious our sin is. The Savior must be God, because God alone is righteous. That's the point that Isaiah makes here in Isaiah 59. And the Catechism points out another reason why the Savior must be God. And that is that God alone is able to pay the price for our sins. This is, again, something you see in Scripture. And again, this reflects the kind of salvation you're looking for. If you're comfortable with a merely human Savior, one who comes from among us to save us, then you don't understand what that Savior needs to accomplish. In Psalm 49, the psalmist says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live forever and not see the grave. No man can pay the price that's needed to ransom human life. No man can pay that. Even if they paid their entire life, the price is still too small. And that's what the, the catechism is getting at in the second question and answer. Why must he be true God? Well, he must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he can bear in his human nature the wrath of God against our sins and save us from it. You might think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 130, a song that we've sung many times. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? That's what we need salvation from. And that involves a price then that's far higher than any price that any one of us 
could pay. So our Savior must be God. In the 3rd century AD, there was a group called the Arians, and they saw no reason why the Savior must be God. They argued he was just a man, now a special man, a man with special powers that came from God, but still just a man, and a man who, over the course of his life, became like God because of his righteous life. Well, as always, what you believe about your Savior reflects the kind of salvation that you think you need. And so if you dig into their theology, you discover very quickly that that they didn't understand salvation at all the way that the Bible teaches it and the way that we understand it. For them, salvation was just becoming another son of God, like Jesus became a son of God through his moral diligence and effort. That's the kind of salvation they were looking for. And so that's the kind of Savior they believed Jesus was. For us, salvation is deliverance from the judgment of God against sin. And that's something that only God can provide. So scripture teaches then that the Lord Jesus Christ was and is eternal God, existing with the Father before all time began. As God alone, He alone can be our Savior. We can't save ourselves. God alone is righteous and God alone is able to pay the price for our sins that none of us could pay. As God says in Isaiah 43 verse 11, I, I am Yahweh and besides me there is no Savior. If Jesus Christ is not God, then He cannot be our Savior, at least not for the kind of salvation that Scripture says we need. Now, what if we look at it from the other side? We, we acknowledge that Christ must be God, but why must Christ be one of us? Why did God send a Savior who was human like one of us? Couldn't God just save us without coming to earth as a human being? Well, again, the kind of Savior you're looking for reflects the kind of salvation you think you need. Why couldn't God save us any other way? Well, to put it that way, it might, might sound like a strong statement. God couldn't? God, can't God do anything? Can we really say God couldn't save us without Christ being human? Well, that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews says in the text that we read. In verse 16 of of chapter 2, we read, For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ had to be made like one of us. And here he means not only that Christ had to be human, but even that Christ had to suffer and to be tested like all of us are tested. He couldn't be our Savior if he wasn't tested like we were tested. He can't claim to be a faithful high priest if he wasn't himself tested. 
And you can see this point in verse 10 as well. If you look at chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For it was fitting. There's another statement of necessity. God had to do it this way. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the foundation, or sorry, the, the, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those sanctified must have one source. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So the author's point here is Christ had to be one of us in every way. First as a human being and secondly as someone who's experienced temptation and suffering. No other kind of savior will do. When it says he who sanctifies and those sanctified must have one source, that might be better translated, they must be of one nature, or even as the NIV says it, of one family. They must be one and the same, one kind. In other words, he must be one of us in every sense. And that, that making holy, you see that in, in verse 11, that, that he makes holy, that him who makes holy... It's a reference to the work of the priest, the work that the priest would do. They made the people holy by offering their sacrifices on their behalf and by sprinkling the blood of those sacrifices on the people. They could only, of course, sacrifice sheep and goats. Those only symbolized what Christ would do. But they stood before God as human beings making payment for human beings on behalf of their brothers. And so what verse 11 communicates is that it's fitting or right or appropriate in God's eyes, by God's standards, that the one who makes holy, the high priest, must be one of the people. The one who makes the payment and those who are paid for must be of the same nature, the same family. God says it must be this way. No other kind of savior will do. And that's why we also then confess in the catechism, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. This is the only kind of salvation we could ever hope for. This is the kind of savior that God has determined is right and fitting and appropriate to send. And you can see this also in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, in order that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, the devil. You can notice there's a logical flow there. He needed to be this in order to do this. It had to be that way. In order to destroy the devil, he had to partake of the flesh and blood of those he was saving. He had to be one of us. So the writer to the Hebrews then makes it clear that the one who would pay for sins must be of the same nature as those who are paid for. And he also emphasizes, you'll notice this more in in, in chapter 7, but it's here in chapter 2 as well, that unlike his brothers, this man must be perfect. Verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting, again, another necessity statement, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
Now, this doesn't mean that, that Christ was somehow you know, imperfect before he suffered, or at least sinfully imperfect. In many places, Hebrews emphasizes the opposite. He's very, Christ is very distinct from us in that he's not a sinner. Hebrews 4, verse, 14, verse 15 tells us, He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet remains without sin. Hebrews 7, verse 26, He is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. So it's not that Christ was sinfully imperfect before he was tested. But we can, we can discover what this text is saying if we read on in Hebrews. Hebrews 5, verse 8, it makes a very similar statement. Although he was a son, this is Hebrews 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who hoped in him. So what's what's this text saying? It's saying that even though Christ was the Son of God, he needed to be made perfect. He had to learn what it is to obey. His obedience was untested. Just like Adam in the garden, before he partook of the fruit, his obedience was not yet tested. But unlike Adam, Christ would succeed where Adam had failed. Through his suffering, he learned what it meant to obey what it meant to be an obedient son. And he was able to put that obedience into practice and do what Adam ultimately failed to do. So when Hebrews 2 verse 10 then says it's fitting or appropriate that our Savior be made perfect through suffering, it means that Christ needed to be tempted just like we are tempted. And he needed to offer to God the obedience that we couldn't offer when we were tempted. It would not do, in other words, for the Lord Jesus to simply appear on the earth, die, and go back to heaven. No, he needed to suffer. He needed to be tempted. He needed to be tried. He needed to take his place as a man and then do what every other man failed to do. He needed to be fully human and perfectly righteous. In Hebrews 7, verse 26, we read that also. It tells us the same thing. It was fitting. Again, you notice that expression. It was fitting that, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So the point that he's making is this. It's necessary for God that the one who pay our debt not be himself a sinner like us, but instead holy blameless and righteous like God. So yes, the Savior of humanity needed to be human. But unlike other humans, who, unlike any other human being who might, try to be, who might try to save sinners but would be disqualified because he is a sinner himself, Christ is not born into that same corruption. So verse 27 says, unlike the other high priests, He doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. He only offers for their sins, and once offered, uh, it's offered once for all. And that's what we confess in then in the second part of, of question and answer 16 of the Catechism. He needs to be not just a man, but a righteous man, because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for others. So our Savior needed to be God, because only God is righteous, only God is able to pay the price for our lives, and yet he also needs to be 
one of us, sharing in our nature and tested just like we are tested. And that's why you have that question towards the end of the Lord's Day. What kind of Savior is there who meets that kind of qualification? And of course, there's, there's only one Savior who has ever come that meets that standard. And that's the Savior that God himself sent, Jesus Christ. He came to save a people that might not have been looking for that kind of salvation. They were looking, for the most part, for a different Savior. Some were looking for a Savior from the Romans. Some were looking for other kinds of Saviors. But God sent that Savior, and Christ came, and thank God that He came, because without Him, we might never have even known what the real problem was until it was too late. We might not have even known what kind of salvation we needed until it was too late. But while we are still enemies, this is from Romans, Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. We didn't ask him to do that. We probably didn't expect him or we wouldn't have even wanted him to do that. But he came anyways because that was the kind of salvation that we needed. And God knew that and sent that kind of Savior. Verse 14 is an interesting verse in this whole argument. It says he came to destroy the power of the one came, excuse me he came to destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery it's a long complicated sentence again this is a brainy part of scripture it takes some thinking through But the point is this, when the devil persuaded Adam and Eve to sin against God, he enlisted the whole world in his rebellion against God. He enslaved the human race. How does that work? Well, we are enslaved by our own guilt. We can't return to God as long as we are guilty. We wouldn't want to return to God because with God, there is judgment. And that's exactly where Satan needs us to be. That's where Satan wants us to be. Satan's called the accuser, and and he points to our sin. He reminds us of how detestable we are in God's eyes. And as long as we are in that position, then we continue to live out exactly the kinds of lives that Satan wants us to live out. That's, what the arguments, that's the argument that's being made in verse 14. That's what our text refers to when it says that Satan holds the power of death. And that's what it means by speaking of a lifelong slavery to sin and to darkness because of the fear of death. As long as we are terrified by the thought of God, then we're going to do everything we can to put God from our minds. That's Satan's strategy right from the beginning when he tempted Adam and Eve. This is his game plan. And so as long as Satan is able to accuse us that we're sinners and hopeless and condemned by God then we continue to live the lives that Satan wants us to live. Because then there's no use in living any other kind of life. There's no use in seeking a God who will destroy you. We continue to sin, and we do everything we can to suppress the knowledge of God who will destroy us. So it's not surprising we come up with different kinds of salvations that we believe we need. Who wants a salvation that brings you before God? How dare we even imagine that kind of salvation? But that's the salvation that God offered. Well, the slavery that Satan brought the human race into, 
it, it takes various forms. For some, it, it becomes a slavery to religion, a slavery to self-righteousness, doing rituals, doing works, terrified by the knowledge of our own guilt and putting every effort into this system of, of, of rigid law-keeping and works righteousness to persuade ourselves that we're righteous and there's no problem with God. Some of the Pharisees were looking for that kind of Savior who would encourage everyone in Israel to live out those perfect law-keeping, ritualistic lives. For others, we, we're in a slavery to despair. Our response to our responses to, to sin is to despair, to resign ourselves to sinning, to say, well, if I'm guilty, then I will sin to the fullest as long as I can. And of course, they are looking for a very different kind of Savior, a Savior who gives them more pleasure, a Savior who gives them more, uh, more opportunity to sin. For others still, there's a slavery to distraction, they do whatever they can to distract themselves from the, real, the greater realities of life, from the terrible knowledge that there is a God who will condemn them and that their life is indeed very, very short. So they distract themselves with loud music, parties, pleasure, sex, drugs, whatever it is to keep them from thinking about a God who hangs over them with the threat of death. They, too, look for a different kind of Savior, a Savior who can distract them on whatever it is they want to be distracted with. Well, Christ came, our text says, to make atonement for sins. The word in verse 17 is propitiation. It's a technical term for what the high priest would do, atoning for sins, removing guilt, and assuaging God's wrath, making peace with God. That's not the kind of Savior that we were looking for. What it means is Christ came to make a payment for sins, to remove our guilt and to turn away the wrath of God from us. And can you see how this destroys the power of the devil? This, like no other salvation, devastates the devil. Remember, his strategy is to condemn. That's how he holds us into slavery. His strategy is to condemn. If we're forgiven, if we're made guiltless before God, then the devil has nothing left to hold us down with. He has no power over us. If we're forgiven, then we have no more reason to fear being brought into the presence of God. We have no more use for that slavery to empty religion or despair or distractions to keep us from the knowledge of God. If we're forgiven, the knowledge of God is a good thing, a beautiful thing, a welcome reality. The fear of death then no longer hangs over us because this is the kind of Savior that God has sent. And so among those of us who are forgiven, who are cleansed by the blood of that Savior, Satan has no power over us to enlist us in support of his kingdom. We're reconciled to God. We're reconciled to Satan's own enemy. And Satan has no control over us who are brought near to God. Well, this is what our perfect Savior came to do. He meets every requirement of God's demands, and this is what he accomplishes for us. He delivers us, as verse 14 says, He delivers us whose lives were held in slavery by fear of death. 
Now, Satan will certainly continue to point out your sins, to accuse you to your face. And he will tell us we are dirty. He will tell us we are guilty. He will tell us God hates us because of our sin. But he only does so now as a deceiver. That's why he's often referred to in Scripture as the deceiver. His accusations are true. We are guilty. We have sinned. But he's a deceiver because he says there's no hope with God when God says Jesus Christ is your hope. So we who trust in Christ, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to distract ourselves from death. We don't need to lie to ourselves about our inner goodness, about the the works that we have done that we might think might please God. We don't need to deceive ourselves any longer. We don't need, like so many who are terrified of, of, of God's judgment, to fill our minds with, with distractions and with anything that puts the thought of God far from our minds. In other words, we don't need to join the devil's forces. We don't need to be serving him in that lifelong slavery to sin. So, because Christ our Savior has come, God is no longer our enemy in Christ. He's our Father. We don't need to listen to the devil's voice or the voice of anyone else speaking on his behalf, telling us that we have no choice but to sin because that's just who we are or because it's too late anyways or because we're dirty and dirty people do things like that. It's a lie the devil so often tells or he tells through people that he places in our lives. But no, in Christ, we've been cleansed. That accusation falls flat. It's simply not true. God is Almighty God, and that's the Savior he's also sent to us. Almighty God, who can pay the price for our sins, who's guiltless, who's qualified to, to, to achieve our salvation. And he stands before God in our place as one of us, tempted, just like we were tempted, and yet obedient. His righteousness is ours. His obedience is ours. No guilt in life, as the hymn goes. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us who believe. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 116, stanzas 2 through 5.